Hi, I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. Today on the show, I am joined by the curator, researcher, and designer Zara Arshad. Zara describes herself as being interested in 20th and 21st century material and visual culture, liminal spaces, speculative histories, and design futures. From 2011 to 2019, she documented the field of contemporary design in China on a website called Design China. She also developed the Unheard Archive, a set of oral histories on graphic design in South Korea, and is currently collaborating with the media artist Yalu on speculative design practice they are calling geofictions. I've been interested in Zara's work for a while now and was especially interested in her work documenting these contemporary practices in China and Korea and the way she thought about sharing this knowledge, whether that is on blogs, in podcasts, or in oral histories. So I was excited to have her on the show to talk through it all. In this episode, we talk about how she got interested in design, working as a graphic designer and slowly moving into a more curatorial or research role. We talk about the connections between design history and speculative design, ways to think about graphic design canons, and the importance of making work public across a variety of media. If you like the show, I hope you consider supporting it on Patreon. We offer three monthly tiers, $3 for students, $5 for patrons, and $10 for superfans. They give you access to all sorts of bonus content like monthly newsletters, early episodes, full transcripts, and exclusive bonus interviews, all while helping to financially support this show. So if you like scratching the surface, if you want to see it continue, I hope you consider joining us on Patreon. You can visit patreon.com slash surface podcast for all the details and to help support the show. Thanks for listening. And here is me with Zara Arshad. start this conversation with a very big question and I apologize for starting big right away <laughs> on, on the home page of your website you describe your work you say I research 20th and 21st century material and visual culture liminal spaces speculative histories and design futures that is such a fascinating sentence with so much <laughs> packed in there and I'm I'm wondering if you just talk about that a little bit, like when you talk about your research and when you talk about the work you're doing, how do you describe it? How do you kind of define what you do? And and then can you talk a little bit about what you mean by these like liminal spaces, these speculative histories and design futures and how all those things start to fit together for you? Yes, of course. Um, I suppose when I put that sentence together, I was actually trying to construct something that was broad enough that I felt mm-hmm. kind of covered um, the research and the practice work that I find myself involved in. Um, I think for the most part, I'm perhaps more recognized for my research in 20th and 21st century material and visual culture, mm-hmm. which sometimes um, we might shorten to design. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then, of course, using the word design can be problematic, complicated um, in some of the contexts that I um, research within and from. Um, So a majority of my investigations really kind of depart from East Asian contexts, primarily China and South Korea, um, sometimes also Hong Kong, Taiwan and Japan. Mm. Um, And trying to understand design and craft histories within these contexts um, that has that comes with I think some 
challenges. And so framing that work as design, (laughs) (laughs) um, as I mentioned, kind of complicates, um, complicates that work sometimes. So I think that's why I've chosen to use um, the term or the description material and visual culture. Mm. Um, And then in terms of some of the other descriptors that you mentioned, liminal spaces, I have always just found myself working um, in in these in-between spaces um, myself as a practitioner, as a researcher. Um, And then similarly, my work also seems to be situated in some kind of third space oftentimes. Mm. Um, And then with regards to speculative histories and design fictions, I think these are areas or fields that I have been engaged with more recently um and i think some of that recent work is encompassed in geofictions i think you mm-hmm. and i have spoken about yep. um a studio that i co-founded with a media artist called yalu um, she's currently based in seoul um, she's usually based between seoul and chicago um, and she's brilliant. She's, um, you know, worked in various different, um, worked with rather various different technologies. She creates these um, fantastical projections that really, um, and her work really kind of explores various different topics, but um, a lot of which do really kind of cross identity and some of the context within which she finds herself in. Um, and so together, when I met Yalu, we were at um, the Asia Culture Center in Gwangju, which is in South Korea. Um, and this was 2019. And when we met, um, we just thought it would be very interesting for me to kind of bring my research background, um, my work that often deals with historical inquiry in it, as I mentioned, kind of working from East Asian context, and then her um uh, kind of media art, speculative art right. um, approaches. Um, and so I suppose we thought that it would be interesting to kind of marry these different um, methodologies, approaches, yeah. even mediums that we both work in and see where where that kind of takes us. So I think the latter half of that description on my website really kind of speaks to that work. It's that's so interesting. And I want to talk about geofictions more um, in a second and, and kind of how you see those those fitting together. It's interesting to hear you talk about that. And I was asking that question, that f- kind of first question about that sort of descriptor, you know, very, very selfishly. I'm kind of fascinated by how people describe their work and their their research. And, you know, I'm kind of in a in a stage in my career where I need to really think about how I'm defining that. And kind of like you, it's kind of expansive sometimes. And how you kind of phrase that is something that's interesting. And, and, I, and I, I, I think there's a range within your work that I was curious about and kind of how you saw those fitting together. Before we talk about how those fit together, can we go back in time a little bit? I'm kind of interested in how you got into these spaces and thinking about these spaces. You, I saw that you originally were working as a graphic designer. Did you study graphic design in undergrad? Actually, no. Okay. okay. <laughs> Um, So for my undergraduate degree, I studied on the uh, BA design program at Goldsmiths College. Um, And so this is, it's a program that isn't necessarily defined by a specific design discipline. 
Um, it's very kind of multidisciplinary um, for the studio element of the course. You get given mm. a design brief and um, you're given the freedom and the flexibility to answer that design brief um, in any way that you see fit. So that could be in terms of discipline, could be in terms of theory, um, ah. in different mediums. You could be workshop based, you could be conceptual. Um, it, it, I mean, it was great um, in terms of being able to build on your critical thinking skills as well. Yeah. Um, so that's actually where I did my undergraduate and what I did that in. Okay. Um, that's so but, interesting, mm-hmm. by the way. I've talked to many people who have gone to Goldsmiths. And I've never actually talked about the curriculum there. I had no idea that it was that sort of open and, and flexible. That I had no idea. I mean, I, I would say that that was my particular experience um i remember very much enjoying being on that particular course i think it it fit what i needed at that time it fit me very well um because i came from a very academic background Mm. um i had completed an international baccalaureate diploma Mm. um uh, I was schooling at the British International School in um, Indonesia, in Jakarta, Indonesia, before coming back to the UK to do my undergraduate. So I came from this very kind of academic background. And so to have this space where yeah. I was able to learn a bit more about design, but not necessarily be confined to a particular, again, a particular discipline or style. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, yeah, it just, it really met my needs at the time. Um, but to come back to your initial question around um, me working as a graphic designer, um, I think that very much um, emerged when, uh, actually after I left Goldsmiths, after I had graduated. Um, so I graduated in 2008. And as we all know, that was yep. when the recession yep. <laughs> took place. Um, but as it happened, I had the opportunity to go out to China. And so I was based in Beijing for about four years. And it was there that I started to practice as a graphic designer, mainly because it it, it was just easy to give myself um, a <laughs> discipline, you know, kind of right, set of parameters right. to work within and also um, to uh, communicate to clients better what it is that I offered in terms of services. Right. I, okay. So I have two questions uh, yeah. about this, um, about uh, kind of about your time at Goldsmiths, I guess. Um, were, I mean, you, you mentioned coming from this academic background and that you really appreciated the space at Goldsmiths to kind of think about design in these different ways. Um, so let's go back in time even further. Where, why design? Where did the interest in design come from? Or why was that what you wanted to study when you went to Goldsmiths? Yeah, I do. I get asked this question a lot. And I still, to be honest, I still really don't know how to answer it. Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, I don't, I mean, I, I never had this very strong idea when I was a younger person that I would go into design the field of design um I think when I was still at school um I had this vague idea that maybe I wanted to work in advertising Uh, um because I I feel that I was quite a creative child (laughs) um but I came from a background or or rather 
my family expectations were that maybe I would progress into a career that was a bit more stable in mm. their um, in their view. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, advertising seemed to be a good compromise in that. Um, but then I remember at the same time, one of my teachers um, at the school, um, at BIS, the British International School in Jakarta, um, would quite jokingly, um, you know, kind of say, you know, advertising, it's such a kind of capitalist corporate route. I don't know if that, <laughs> if that really suits you. Um, and I think, although that was a joke, it kind of got me thinking a bit more about where I wanted to see myself in the future. Um, so I think that was a little bit of kind of the underlying thinking around how I ended up at Goldsmiths. But then there was a a more practical side to it as well, actually, um, in that when I was applying for university courses, we were, I think we we had to apply for six universities using this specific um, application system called UCAS. Mm. And um, for creative courses, you had to group three of your chosen universities in what was called a route a and the remaining three in what was called a route b and i didn't understand what the difference was to be honest (laughs) i mean to be quite frank i really i didn't i was not informed enough to understand what the difference was and there weren't enough people (laughs) this is going to make the school sound awful but there weren't enough people in the school who um had enough information around the kind of course that I wanted to go into um, that could tell oh, me what the okay. difference was, <laughs> that could instruct me. Wow. So um, actually, when I applied for university, because of um, this process, and I think I had completed the application wrong, I immediately um, was rejected from four out of six universities. Mm. Um, and then the remaining out of the remaining two, I just got a really good sense from Goldsmiths. My interaction with them was great. Wow. Um, wow. With all of the tutors. Yeah. So actually that really kind of decided it for me in some sense. Wow. I mean, and it seemed like it worked out. <laughs> it sounds like it was a great, a, a great experience. Can you, so you're there now and you're, when you're in school and you're, and you're studying in this design program what were you thinking? I mean, to go back in time a little bit, what were you thinking there? Did you think you were going to be a designer? Were you interested in history already at this point and sort of the theories and ideas around design? Or what was your sort of way into design while you were in school? When I was at school at Goldsmiths, I think in my head um, at that point, yes, I wanted to graduate and emerge as a practicing designer. I think that was definitely the path that I envisioned in the short term for myself. Um, I was always interested in history. Um, It was one of the additional elective courses I had taken for my Mm -hmm. IV. Um, And I do also remember being reprimanded by um, Goldsmith's studio tutors for always reading. (laughs) (laughs) So they'd be like, go out and do some stuff. Like, stop reading. But yeah, I think in my head, practice was definitely the way forward at that point. I mean, the reason I ask, I, all these questions are leading 
you know, are kind of leading to something because I guess, so it was when you were in Beijing, is that when you started the blog Design China? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. I'm That I think is where I first came across your, your work or there was some press around, around the blog or you had done an interview or something a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, I saw this. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious about, uh, these questions may or may not be related. I'm sort of curious about the initiative to start this blog, what you were interested in, and kind of talking a little bit about what Design China was and what you wanted to do with it and how that started. But then also about this sort of transition that you then had from moving to practice, uh, you know, from being a graphic designer to being a historian, researcher, writer. Um, mm. can, can you kind of talk about how that happened through the, the kind of process of Design China? Yeah. Um, so to answer your first question, um, how did Design China come about? I think it was something that I had been thinking about um, pretty much ever since I had relocated to Beijing from London. That was in um, late 2008, early 2009. Um, And in my first year of being in Beijing, I was fortunate enough to work on the organizing committee for um, the EcoGrada World Design Congress. Mm. Um, And through that work, I was very quickly able to create networks with both established and emerging locally based designers. Um, as well as those designers that we were inviting over for the conference. So it was, it felt like a moment where there was a lot of energy. There was a lot, you know, there were many people around, there were a lot of conversations. Um, And I think during that time, I very much felt that um, whilst all these conversations were taking place at the same time, they were quite contained. Mm -hmm. Um, They were taking place in particular environments, usually academic contexts, usually with um, the same groups of people. Some of these groups of people didn't really speak to one another. And so for me, I thought to create some sort of, at that point, I was thinking of a bilingual platform that really kind of shared this information with broader audiences could be something um, that might be needed. But it wasn't until the following year when I was working um, on the organizing committee for Beijing Design Week in 20, no, two years later, I should say, in 2011, um, that I kind of received a push to start this platform, whatever it was going to be. Um, And that was very much because of um, the role that I had come to play um, during Beijing Design Week in 2011. And that was um, somehow I found myself (laughs) um, having to deal with a group of visiting journalists, um, our international kind of journalist group. Mm. Um, I, I think I might have been the only other native English speaker second to Eric Chen, who was the creative okay. director of mm-hmm. Beijing Design Week at the time. Of course, you've interviewed yeah. Eric for one of your podcasts. Um, and so Eric had asked me if I could, um, you know, help these journalists kind of navigate um, the city, the program. And um, I think there was a real kind of 
dare I say, maybe a sense of frustration with these journalists in that, you know, there was a certain amount of information that was being presented to them, um, but perhaps because of cultural um, cultural mm. obstacles or linguistic challenges, you know, that they're, they're, I think my role and my colleague's role, um, I was working with someone called Mariana at the time, we were there to kind of provide a bit of context, I think, to a lot of the projects and the um, installations and so on that were being shown as part of Beijing Design Week. We were there kind of, you know, filling in the gaps, so to speak, mm. for these journalists. Um, and I think through that process, um, again, it kind of became evident that maybe a platform that was kind of sharing more around how the work that was being featured as part of Beijing Design Week, how that work had been put together, what was its significance, um, you know, what mm. were the making processes that might have been involved in putting a project together, all of like these different elements um i think needed to be documented somewhere um and so these visiting journalists i remember one on their one of their final nights we had a dinner together and they kind of sat down sat me down and said you know like you have all of this information that's contained in your head and you need to find a way to share it and so you know just make a website make a blog um just call it you know, something to do with China and design and start <laughs> publishing the stuff that you know. <laughs> wow. Um, so, yeah, that was that was basically the kick um, and how Design China um, really emerged from, from that experience. And so did you think of yourself as a historian at this point or kind of how did, how, how did this... I, I, I guess the question I'm trying to ask is like, how did this then become the job? You know, you then you went back to school and got a, you know, an MA in design history. So much of your work is now around history, historical narratives, all of these things that we've been talking about. How did that happen? You know, like kind of in writing the blog, when did you realize, hey, this is actually, I don't need to be a graphic designer. This is the thing I want to do. <laughs> the four years that I spent in Beijing, um, I really kind of transitioned between, or rather worked as a graphic designer, as a practitioner. I also worked as a design journalist. Mm, and mm -hmm. perhaps um, when Design China was set up during this time, that was maybe how I saw myself as kind of working um, within design journalism. Then I also um, moved into curating. Right. I co-curated a show for Beijing Design Week 2012 um, upon Eric's invitation. Um, so I kind of really moved um, between these different spaces. Events management was also another, another space that I occupied. Um, and I think that was partially curiosity. It was partially because I had the networks and it was also partially, um, I think, being opportunistic Mm. Um, so if work or an invitation came to me, I thought, you know, why not try it out? Let's see how it goes. Um, so I think within the four years that I was in Beijing, I very much moved around, um, that transition from that work, I think to a historian perhaps became, came much later, um, after I completed my master's, um, on the history of design program 
which is administered between the Royal College of Art and the Victoria and Albert Museum. Um, And up until this point, to be completely frank with you, I wasn't very aware of design history as a field, Mm. as a discipline. Mm. Um, And I think that aspect of, again, kind of marrying perhaps my um, previous background or experience as a practitioner with history that really kind of came to the fore during this course um yeah so I I would say that that transition came much later I have a couple questions around history and around design history it's interesting to hear you say that you know you you know kind of weren't really aware of that as a field and what strikes me about your work in thinking about design history that is largely focused on on kind of design history in, in Southeast Asia how much of design history and I'm putting that in quotes right now you can't see me putting that in quotes <laughs> uh, as it is taught, and talked about, at least in the United States, and I imagine probably some in in Europe also, is a very Western focus, Uh, kind of, you know, single, single designer narrative, where it's like, these designers made these innovations, you know, still kind of taught in that way. Um, A little bit of a a blanket statement. Um, And I don't know if I have a question here other than I'm kind of like curious what you think. I I, I just want to hear kind of how you come come at this. And even last year I was involved in a, in in teaching a class. And when, when I was shown the curriculum, it was all white guys. Like the readings were all white guys and it was all American. It it was not an American design history class, but that's just how it was being taught. And and I was like, I can't do this. You know, I can't. I can't teach a class where I'm assigning students who are primarily, honestly, from from Asia, uh, primarily female, and then teach them that design history is all these these white guys, you mm-hmm. know, kind of debating each other. And I'm curious how you think about kind of te- you know telling these stories that are written out of design history at large and again i'm putting design history in quotes and then even when it is included is so often seen as as other or like a curiosity you know mm-hmm. or it's you know it's kind of seen as something that's that's different and how you think about kind of like being on the ground uh you know in these spaces telling these stories just kind of curious your experience in that space telling these stories that have so often been marginalized and covering these histories what is that work like and how do you think about sort of injecting these stories into the quote-unquote larger narrative of design history Mm. yeah i mean i think um i think i was quite lucky once again with my master's program in that there was a real recognition on the part of our tutors that the design history canon, so to speak, Mm -hmm. is very Eurocentric or Mm -hmm. Euro-American centric. Um, And I studied on what at that time was called an Asian strand, um, which was headed by Dr. Christine Guth. And she was she was amazing. It was um, such a privilege to be able to study under her. And so when we were assigned readings, we had authors 
philosophers, theorists, anthropologists, oh. and so on, from all different kinds of backgrounds. Um, and the work was really varied. We would have our taught classes, for example, would be um, framed around materials. So mm. we had a module about paper, a module even about dung. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. So, or, or I should say a class um, about dung. Yeah, so I think it was very varied and it was instilled in us during that time, um, you know, these kind of problematics around who gets represented and why within the field of, of design history. Um, and so as someone whose work does often depart from East and Southeast Asian contexts, um, representation has often been a large part of my work. Um, it's also something that I struggle with sometimes. Um, so if I mm. think, for example, about Design China, although I didn't necessarily think of myself a design, as a design historian at the time, um, being someone who was foreign to that space that was writing about this material, although I was embedded in the context at the time, I was very aware of my own positionality. Right, right. Um, and I think for the first couple of years, because the platform was new, because the website was new, and I saw myself as documenting. So if I had gone to an event or an exhibition or I had interviewed a designer, for me, it was let's just document this process and kind of create this quote unquote archive of sorts, you know, of this mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the process was perhaps dare I say a bit easier when I was embedded <laughs> yeah um but then I you know as we mentioned I relocated from Beijing to London and that was in 2013 to undertake the masters and that physical um change in my position also changed I think my positionality to this website Right. um because then what was I writing about was I writing about designers who were of Chinese nationality was I <laughs> mm -hmm. writing about people who might have used elements of Chinese culture in their work um you know there were just kind of all of these additional questions that were thrown up around how do I deal with this material in the context of design China and I really kind of struggled um um yeah, so I think that is something that I've constantly been aware of is also my own positionality in the kind of research and work that I do, not being part um, of the cultures. Although, I mean, I would say that having lived in those cultures, maybe there is part, I am part of that now. But um, I think that there are some struggles there. But yeah, kind of coming back to your mention of the canon kind of being very Euro-American. Um, it's something that has come to the fore now that I am teaching. Mm -hmm. And um, I still find it surprising, but then also not surprising. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, I know. <laughs> around how um, these, yeah, these courses and modules are framed <clears throat> I have some similar experiences whereby I'll look at a reading list and it's 
usually white cis middle class yep. men yep. Um, that are represented either through the reading list or through the material that's being present, the practice work that's being presented. Um, and really all I can, all I, all I can say, all I feel that I can do in that sense is try to present other perspectives, these marginalized yeah. histories, um, you know, within lectures or try and find ways of um, readdressing the um, bibliographies that we hand mm-hmm. out to students, um, you know, mm-hmm. what's really kind of within my power and my agency these like little steps I think is what I very much endeavor to do. I have another really big question for you. And so I apologize if this is completely (laughs) unanswerable, but hearing you talk about this and kind of thinking about these questions of histories and narratives and, and marginalization uh, and canons. um, I want to go back to something you said right at the beginning of the conversation about how you you describe your research as 20th and 21st century material and visual culture as opposed to design and sort of just the problematics around that word design Mm -hmm. and thinking about quote unquote the canon what is what is the role of the canon like why you know do we even need a canon and do we even need to use that word design and if we can think of material and visual culture at large as a type of design the canon (laughs) or what could be the canon is everything and so Mm -hmm. how do you think about the idea of canons or what what we call design history as opposed to material and visual culture? And how do you kind of just, you know, articulate this in your own work and even teaching and thinking about teaching, quote unquote, a design history class? What does that even mean now? (laughs) You know what I mean? I I know that's a big question, but do you know what I'm talking about? Um, I think, well, it definitely is a big question. Um, I think some of the ways in which I approach um, the canon, quote unquote, the canon, um, I suppose I th- I'm in two minds about this. I, on, the, on the one hand, I do see the canon as being hmm, a useful tool in that it's there to interrogate and to probe and to critique. And so while that core, we might, we, we might understand that core to be Euro-American centric, um, a lot of the work that we can do having that already set as the foundation is mm-hmm. to poke the holes and to open up um, mm-hmm. conversations in my, in my situation um, with students, um, you know, about again, opening up these questions around who gets represented, why, and um, what else might be folded into our understandings of design, craft, art, histories. Um, And yeah, to use the the broader um, or perhaps more inclusive terms of material and visual culture. Um, So I do think on the one hand, it is quite useful as a model to to, um, unpack. Um, and again, if we think of center peripheries, um, really kind of creating networks, perhaps around these histories and narratives, 
that we we start to build on the other hand um i do feel that perhaps that broader more encompassing uh, as i mentioned more inclusive ter- terms being material and visual culture perhaps provide a bit more flexibility and scope you know as you said mm-hmm. there could be so many different ideas and objects and concepts and so on could be folded into um, material and visual culture. So I think that then provides a space to um, perhaps, yeah, just be a bit more nimble and flexible with the kind of histories and narratives um, that we might explore. So, I mean, I don't necessarily know if I, if I have an answer, but I see them both as useful models. Yeah, no, and I was not expecting, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, I was not expecting you to answer that. And I think you kind of <laughs> kind of articulated the tension that I feel when I think about it in a much better way than I've been able to. And so I got I got what I needed out of, out of your answer. Um, I'll, here's, an, here's an easier question for you. Something that I'm fascinated by in your work is how you think about sort of outcomes in publishing and making this research public. I mean, we talked about Design China, which was a blog that was on the internet. You Mm -hmm. did a project called the Unheard Archive, which was contemporary graphic design in South Korea that was all based around oral histories. You uh, do a podcast, Reverberations, um, about marginalization and underrepresentation in kind of cultural and creative sectors. Uh, you do exhibitions. We talked about geofictions um, at the beginning that I want to talk about more in a second. That's kind of more speculative design. How do you think about sort of publishing or distribution or sort of the forms that these narratives in this work can take? It's not all just going into books. You know, it's not all just going into papers or something like that. You, you seem mm-hmm. to really be interested in these sort of alternative forms of, of distribution. How, how does that kind of play out in the process and in the in the outcome thank you for the question that makes me feel like I'm doing something right (laughs) (laughs) you are I think you are um it's it has been a very deliberate I think um approach to disseminating Mm -hmm. research and ideas generally speaking um I think part of my cohort on the masters um we I think my classmates and I, we would, it just never really kind of sat right with us that we would be embarking on, you know, all of these interesting investigations that covered so many different geographies and timeframes and um, networks of people and communities. And then that material would just sit in a thesis or in a journal paper which I have had to do as someone that works in academia, you do have to publish within these more conventional platforms mm-hmm. and formats. Um, but for me, I think it was, it has been perhaps more, dare I say, meaningful um, and more interesting to be able to find ways to make that research more accessible to different audience groups. And that was part of, what made museum work for me really interesting. So after studying on the master's program, I worked in the design architecture and digital department of the Victoria and Albert Museum Mm. here in London. Um, And it's a public museum. So much of what you do is geared towards inviting 
general audience groups, families, younger people, as well as design specialists and design students to engage with the research and the curating that you're doing. Mm. And I think for me, I just found that much more interesting that there was an an intended group who, again, might not be specialized, might not necessarily see themselves as experts, but were wanting to come in and to engage with this work that we're we're putting together um and so i think that has translated at you know as as you've kindly noted in so many different projects that i've done it's finding ways to open up these conversations and not just kind of keep them contained within an academic audiences otherwise i mean from my perspective otherwise what's the point you're speaking to yeah. someone who is like you um yeah. And yes, there is merit in that. You you learn and you you exchange and you learn and you you might think of a, a different theory or a different approach that you could apply to your research. But I think for me, the value is really kind of engaging with groups of people um, that that might prompt you um, to to think of your material in 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 a different way. I think than perhaps in academia. I, yeah, I love that. That's so much of what my work is about. Also, I mean, I, I've said this many times on the show itself, but this podcast started as a thesis project that I did not want to just live within the walls of the, you mm-hmm. know, I wanted this to be public in some way. I wanted to see what would happen if these ideas were sort of out in the world. And so much of my work is about thinking about sort of the distribution models of these things. So it's not just talking to all the same people and it's something that i really admire about you and in, in your work i'm curious if in thinking about these different sort of mediums or outcomes or kind of you know um you know uh kind of models does that change how you work on the project or where you know do you like for the unheard archive for example did you always know that that was going to be based around oral histories or when you arrived at that how did that change the process i'm curious kind of how these different ways of distributing knowledge change the actual research work itself that's a really interesting question i don't think it's something that perhaps I thought about so consciously with regards to the Unheard Archive, but that was primarily because of how that project came about. So this was the work that I was conducting while I was a research fellow at the Asia Culture Centre in 2019. Um, It was always framed as an oral history project, so that's how I applied to ACC, the Asia Culture Centre. it was with this oral history project whereby I wanted to, I suppose, building on some of the work and approaches that I had perhaps exemplified through Design China, really kind of document some of the the work that was being done by graphic designers based in South Korea. Um, and that was with the knowledge that um, there were quite a few initiatives that was started by women designers to really kind of address that balance or rather the the um the unbalanced let's say um representation of um women graphic designers in the, in the local field of visual communication there 
So it was, I kind of put that project together knowing um, of these stories that weren't necessarily being documented or recorded um, by a um, third party, so to speak. Um, so that was intended as an oral history project. Um, the mm-hmm. website that you mentioned, the Unheard Archive, that was the unintended part, actually. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and this was, again, kind of purely to do with pragmatics, actually. Um, the cultural institution that I was part of, ACC, they required a certain amount of work to be completed by myself as part of the fellowship. And so I had deposited that material with them. And then upon leaving, I had all of this additional rich material that wasn't placed in any institution. And the designers that I had interviewed as part of this project were happy for me to represent that work somehow mm-hmm. on, on online. Um, again, kind of making that work a bit more accessible to audiences. Um, uh or to internet audiences so right, i think right. that 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 outcome was kind of shaped by the circumstance once again um and i i would probably say that that happens quite frequently with with my research um sometimes i would say actually a lot of the time perhaps my um the plan that i might have put together initially (laughs) around a project just never really kind of materializes in the way that i envisioned but i'd like to think that for the most part um that actually has really kind of worked out um in terms of yeah again being able to share Mm. this material with broader audiences people that might not necessarily have been able to access that information if it was deposited for example at a specific institution in the south of south korea Um, yeah so i would i would probably say that it has been circumstantial let's uh let's talk about geofictions a little bit because you mentioned that right at the beginning and i did want to talk about that because that feels from the outset something so different than all this other work that mm-hmm. that you've done and and i mean even this conversation is really focused largely on history um and i'm i'm curious how this collaboration with yalu kind of connects to this other work that you've done and then where this is going that is maybe different than the work that you've done in the past Yeah, I definitely think there are overlaps, but also distinctive characteristics Mm -hmm. of the work that we want to do together. Um, So we had actually originally applied for an artist residency at the Pier 2 Art Center, which is based in Kaohsiung in Taiwan. Mm. And we were supposed to undertake that residency in 2020. But of course, we all know what happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And that residency hasn't yet taken place um but the project that we had pitched um was to now let me see if i I can articulate this (laughs) quickly (laughs) um so we we were kind of exploring what we called three parallel worlds the past the present and the future And um, so the first, the past, we wanted to focus on the early 20th century um, within Kaohsiung. So Kaohsiung was going to be our site of exploration. Um, And in the early 20th century, Taiwan and actually South Korea as well were under Japanese colonial um, Mm -hmm. occupation. 
And it was also a time that because of this um, colonial administration, um, there were a lot of quote-unquote modernization projects that were taking place within the various colonized territories um, of the Empire of Japan. And so we wanted to, to look into these histories to look at how the port within Kaohsiung was modernized over time, starting from the Japanese colonial occupation. Um, but in parallel to that, we actually wanted to specifically utilize a non-human lens. Mm. And so we were kind of um, experimenting with um, investigating further the ecological impact of these modernization projects on coastal ecosystems. Um, So we were looking to kind of bridge historical inquiry, um, something that perhaps I'm a bit more familiar with, with um, scientific inquiries looking at, um, as I mentioned, you know, the change um, within coastal ecosystems over time. And that would have entailed collaborating with local scientists. And um, then in addition to that, Yalu also has done a number of projects specifically focusing on seaweed. Um, And she kind of looks at this through the the lens of cultural significance, um, because she herself is of um, Korean heritage. Um, And so we thought kind of bringing all of these different interests together, we could really kind of explore Gaosheng's um, history, but then we wanted to take that right up to the present and perhaps into the future as well, um, looking at the impact of our, you know, we, we're currently in the so-called age of the Anthropocene, mm-hmm. and so looking at kind of global climate um, crises and, again, how that may or may not have impacted um, coast, co- the coastal ecosystems, the same coastal ecosystem that we would have looked at in the in uh, historically speaking um, in the present. Um, and then the kind of future inquiries is where the speculation would have come in. We were mm. working or looking to work with Umali, um, who is a social art and activist, artist and activist, um, who's now based in Uh, and she teaches at a local university so we were going to work with some of her students to really kind of speculate well what will these Mm. um, coastal ecosystems look like you know 50 to 100 years into the future Um, what will the port look like what kind of activities um, would would we see um, in the kind of site specific areas that we had located um, so it, it's a project that had many different layers <laughs> that I find very difficult to explain. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, as, as you mentioned, you know, kind of builds on what I have already been doing, um, as, particularly as part of my research, looking into the, the impact of Japanese colonialism in the region, but then also drawing on speculative art and speculative d- design to imagine, to envision, you know, these other worlds, these other ways of, of, of living with um, uh, non-human actors. Um, so in that sense, yeah, as you say, like very, very different as well. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you articulate that because it's it does even just hearing you talk about it, it sounds much closer than as an outsider looking at it. It kind of immediately feels. And so, what's next for this collaboration? You you did a book. Was that 
earlier this year, earlier 2021, yeah, the work yeah. in progress book. So you did that. Where do you see this collaboration going next? Or like what else, uh, what else is a part of this? It's a good question, Jared. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yes, we put together a book, um, which really kind of, I think, builds on some of the prep research that we had done for the residency, which, as I mentioned, hasn't yet manifested. So that kind of really tapped into some of the thinking. Um, what we would very much like to do in the future, um, if, if the world allows it, um, is to really kind of replicate this project model in other locations so mm -hmm. whilst we would have started in Kaohsiung we were quite interested in maybe going to Busan or Incheon um, in South Korea maybe Shanghai or Hong Kong um, in China and Hong Kong respectively um, so really kind of building this I suppose a repertoire um, or a, I don't know if archive is the right word but building this collection of research projects that start, that depart from the same intention, but I'm sure will yield very different results. Um, and so, yeah, the idea was to kind of replicate that model across different cultural um, or different cities. And then after that, I think is perhaps more of a question mark, not really sure what, what we would do after that. I think it really kind of then depends on what, what kind of emerges out of these, um, yeah. these projects that we intend to do. Well, I'm very interested in seeing what, what comes out of it. Cause I think it is an interesting collaboration. I think it is an interesting sort of evolution of your research. And, and, and like you said, where it starts to diverge feels very, very fascinating to me. So I'm very curious. I think this is a great way to, to wrap up. And so I'm going to ask you the question that I used to end all of these. I'm just curious what you're reading right now. Oh my gosh, I'm reading so much, Jarrett. <laughs> that I don't. Even, oh, right. A, a title can't. I can't even think of a title right now because it's just all a blur. <laughs> um, but in terms of maybe non-PhD titles, um, even better. I love it. I've picked up a few books, um, which I have to admit I haven't yet had the time to sit down and delve into. But um, Wang Xiaowei's Blockchain Chicken Farm. Oh. That's been on my list. Everybody loves that book. It's yeah, it's it's really nice so far, and it's quite a gentle introduction. So where I'm reading about um, decolonization within museums and you know representation mm. within um, these kinds of spaces, blockchain chicken farm has been a really nice kind of respite um, mm. <laughs> almost from, <laughs> from that work. Um, I'm also rereading Audrey Lord's um, Master's House, Master's Tools. Mm. Um, and then the third one on the go, which I started a couple of days ago, is called Stitching the 24-Hour City by Park mm. Soyoung. Um, so very much kind of dealing with um, Dongdaemun, which is in Seoul. It's this space where um, it's kind of like the fast fashion Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say capital of the world, but um, it's a real hotspot for kind of fast fashion narratives. Um, so it's a really interesting insight, kind of a human centered insight mm -hmm. into all of these, um, yeah, kind of processes and, and networks and how all of these uh, uh, different um, 
yeah, how how all of these like different um, chains kind of coalesce and kind of come together within the Dongdaemun area and the markets surrounding. Oh. So that yeah, that I think those are the three titles that um, non PhD work that have kind of been uh, occupy occupying my time. That is a great list, and I love that you still are finding time even in the midst of PhD for some some outside reading. It's uh, called procrastination. <laughs> yes. oh, oh, oh. Believe me, I know all about. I know all about that. Uh, <laughs> this this was such a, a great conversation. I am an admirer of your work and love what you do. And it was so nice to talk to you about all of it. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's been really lovely. And thank you for your generous comments as well. I really appreciate it. This episode was recorded on December 6th, 2021. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.